Amen. Thank you, choir. That was beautiful. Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. In the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. In the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians 3. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am from the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. With respect to observing the law, I am a Pharisee. With respect to devotion to the faith, I harass the church. With respect to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. These things were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have lost everything for him, but what I lost I think of as sewer trash, so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. In Christ, I have a righteousness that is not my own, and that does not come from the law, but rather from the faithfulness of Christ. It is the righteousness of God that is based on faith. The righteousness that I have comes from knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the participation in his sufferings. It includes being conformed to his death so that I may perhaps reach the goal of the resurrection of the dead. It's not that I have already reached this goal or have already been perfected, but I pursue it so that I may grab a hold of it because Christ grabbed a hold of me for just this purpose. Brothers and sisters, I myself don't think I've reached it, but I do this one thing. I forget about the things behind me and reach out for the things ahead of me. The goal I pursue is the prize of God's upward call in Christ Jesus. So all of us who are spiritually mature should think this way. And if anyone thinks differently, God will reveal it to him or to her. Only let's live in a way that is consistent with whatever level we have reached. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we continue our discussion about a discipleship pathway, recognizing that for many of us growing up, we've thought about faith as a light switch that is either on or off. Once you've found faith and the light is on, you're done. The box is checked. You've got fire insurance. You're set. But what we've discovered, though, in asking uh, many different people all across the United States and many different denominations of all different sizes of churches, there are certain stops along the pathway of discipleship. Now, this isn't to say that your walk isn't unique. It is. It's your relationship with Jesus. And it's not going to look like someone else's in terms of the details and the narrative. But what we have found is that there are certain places along the way. You can call them waypoints. 
You could call them rest areas. If you wanted to, you could call them stages, but I'd hate for you to get the idea that those who are stage four are way cooler than those that are stage one. It, it's really, we're, we're all children of God. But what these descriptors provide is a little bit of an idea about where you might be in the process. Um, you see, when you know where you are, you can avoid the potholes and the hurdles. When you know where you are, you can be careful not to fall backwards. When you know where you are, you can know what to reach for, what'll feed your soul, what'll help you move out of the place where you are as you journey towards the heart of God. So today we look at uh, the stage called Living for Jesus. When we look at this stage, um, we, we recognize um, that there are differences between traveling, which was last week, uh, with Jesus, versus living uh, for Jesus. Last week, the, the movement into traveling with Jesus is, is being willing to go public with your faith, not just letting it be something that happens on Sunday or something that happens privately, but your faith becomes public. Living for Jesus is a matter of letting um, the, the daily, my eyesight, yeah, the daily life be guided by a deep love for God. You heard in the videos that living for Jesus is a matter of putting Jesus at the center of who you are and being willing to surrender and sacrifice so that you might continue to keep Jesus at the center. When we look, uh, last week it was uh, important to take ownership of our spiritual development, right? Instead of whatever the pastor's teaching or whatever the church is doing or whatever the Sunday school class is learning through, you don't have to wait. You can take responsibility and ownership of your own development. Uh, this week as we look at living for Jesus, it's about fully surrendering. Uh, and, and allowing Jesus to be part of that decision-making and that priority process. And, and in fact, I'd push a little bit harder, not just surrender, but moving from surrender into sacrifice. We look at other characteristics of moving from uh, traveling to living. There we go. If last week Jesus was mostly in the passenger seat, this week Jesus is driving most of the time the car. Now, um, let's be honest, right? These are not clear categories with bright markations where you never go back. So, so maybe some of us are still struggling whether Jesus is going to drive or not. But you get the idea, right? Instead of traveling with Jesus, Jesus, come with me on my day. Living for Jesus is where will we go today, Jesus? When we continue to look at what makes that difference, I love in the Philippians passage where Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, he says, the righteousness that I have comes from knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the participation in his sufferings. That's an interesting phrase, right? participation in his sufferings. I mean, our, our whole culture is uh, constructed around this entitlement um, and privilege opportunities, right? Um, it's so easy to think that uh, being a member, membership has its privileges. That's the most hilarious thing when we think about churches. When you join the church, you actually lose privileges, right? I, I mean, if you're a guest, you get pr uh, premium parking. 
The minute you join the church, we say don't park in the guest parking area. But as we move deeper and deeper into discipleship, it's not just the perks that we might get from knowing Jesus, but it's the willingness to participate in his sufferings. Paul goes on to say it includes being conformed to his death so that I may perhaps reach the goal of the resurrection of the dead. Paul's words here in Philippians are not only countercultural, but deeply uh, faithful. They are describing that element of living for Jesus. Quite often when we talk about righteousness, it's hard for us to know what does righteousness mean, right? Um, Paul starts this particular passage of scripture by saying he is a Hebrew's Hebrew. He, he is a, uh, he, when he reads scripture, he's a Pharisee. He's well-trained. He's from the best tribe. He was, uh, all the rules and order have been followed in his life. That he has done all the things that a good Jew should do. And in that, you should hear him saying, I have every reason to claim that I am better off faithfully than you are. But he says, all of it's just trash. All of it's nothing. It means nothing. When I think about righteousness, sometimes that, that word is um, one of those words that keep people outside the church, right? Sometimes when we think about righteousness, we think, oh, wow, those Christians are so righteous. They're so heavenly minded. They're no earthly good. Is that kind of the sense that you get from the word righteous? I'd like to think about righteousness as not, not necessarily something that I have done, but rather it is the footing, it is the steadiness that I can have in knowing Christ. It's not what I have done, but it's what Christ has done for me. Um, you know, last year uh, in September, went hiking with a bunch of men in the church, and, and I remember there, there were many um, pathways down, right? There'd be gullies, right? And there'd be many pathways back up. I have to tell you, I liked the down ones better than the up ones. But one of the things that made such a big difference whether we were going up or going down, were these, these hiking poles. Uh, if you've been skiing, it looks like the ski poles that you might use as you're going down the mountain. Uh, but there was, there was no ice, it was 80 degrees outside, uh, and that was in the middle of the night. Um, th these poles were for steadying yourself as you're going up or going down. I, I like to think of righteousness as this ability to be steadied, not in our own ability, but outside of ourselves, uh, through knowing Christ. If we look at righteousness in another way, the psalmist says in 139, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will, I like the translation, steady me or hold me fast. You see, righteousness isn't something that I have done to prove, but it is something that comes as I know Christ and all of it is just uh, from the relationship, that what I get from that relationship with Christ. Characteristics of those that are living for Jesus, uh, these folk are invested in a relationship with Jesus. Notice, not necessarily invested in a relationship with the church. Now, it would be a mistake to think that fours don't need the church, right? To use a, a very secular uh, discussion of success, um, there is no success without a successor. You, you see, the, the, the church for the four becomes a place to humbly serve. 
It is a place to be. Because let's be honest, if you are in that place between threes and fours, you know that the only way that you got where you are is because there were role models along the way who marked out the path, encouraged you to come. We don't just spontaneously find ourselves in a place of spiritual maturity. And so having found our place in a three or a four, we turn back and we help others up. We help others along the path. That this investment in a relationship with Jesus then means that we care for our community. Characteristics of those living for Jesus are about going deeper with spiritual disciplines. This is a continuation from last week. It's no longer uh, just studying the latest book that Adam Hamilton writes. It's not studying um, the, the easiest thing that's next, but rather it's finding the hard things, the necessary things, the things that are going to remove hurdles and uh, potholes from your path, the things that are going to allow you to, to grow and to deepen and to surrender. Uh, to me, as a pastor, this is fascinating, this last point, that, that what living for Jesus folk need is not direction. It's encouragement and support for discernment. Th think about that, right? I mean, pastors are great at teaching scripture. Oh, wow, you want to learn about sacrifice? Great. Here, let's look at, you know, this passage of scripture or that passage of scripture. Here, let me tell you what it means when Jesus says this or what the church believes. See, fours don't need more content. They already know it. What they need is encouragement. They need support for discernment. Now, now let's uh, agree that everybody in our, all of us in our baptism have been called uh, into a ministry, right? I'm not saying that you're going to go to seminary, but if that's your call, that's great, right? But all of us are called into a ministry where we are as a priesthood of all believers. I can tell you that every time I've worked with someone and helping them to discern their call, whether it's to go to seminary or whether it's to lead a Sunday school classroom, they knew that the call was there. It's not like I had to walk up and go, hey, Joe, think you should lead the Sunday school class. No, they already know. It's in their heart. It's not a matter of direction. What they need is encouragement and support and someone to ask, isn't it time that you quit running from what God's calling you to do? When we nurture those who live for Jesus, we find that it doesn't happen uh, in those kind of um, regular ways. It happens in microgroups. It happens in mentoring relationships. I like to think that the walk to Emmaus with their reunion group is a place where that kind of micro-relationship and mentoring relationships happen. That those living for Jesus need opportunities to stay connected and lead. It'd be really easy to assume, oh yeah, uh, Joe is really far down the, uh, the way from us. You know, Jane, she's got it all figured out. Can't ask her to lead a committee. But that's exactly the kind of connection and opportunity that's needed for force. They need to be invited back in to stay connected and to lead. And for living for Jesus, folk, it needs to be a wide range of service opportunities. Not that they are distracted easily, but that they're always asking, is there another level of surrender? Is there another level of sacrifice? Is there a deeper place that I can go in the hands-on work that God's calling me to do? Now, if you feel like, wow, this is way above me, I feel out of my element, 
Okay, we're kind of describing uh, what Wesley would have described as a sanctification. That's the theological term. Um, uh, Wesley, uh, Methodists believe in uh, God's grace being available in three different forms. It's the grace uh, that goes before us, right? Provenient grace. Before we even knew that God existed, God was wooing us, loving us, and courting us into a relationship. Um, that justifying grace, that's the, the grace of the altar call. That's the grace of forgiveness. That's when, um, uh, that, our, um, that the love of God um, justifies us, uh, makes us just as if I had not sinned, right? That grace. What we're talking about here is sanctifying grace. It's that grace that after conversion, that grace of after turning the light on, that grace of having walked with Jesus and traveled with Jesus, we now realize that the Holy Spirit is actively working in us to conform us and reform us to resemble Jesus more and more. Now, John Wesley, um, uh, the preachers would ask John Wesley, is it possible to be, be perfected or sanctified this side of the grave? And Wesley said, yes. He said, if somebody comes to tell you that they are, well, chances are they aren't. Does that, that make sense? Not, not unlike, you know, when we read scripture, the Torah, um, we believe that Moses wrote um, those books um, of the Bible. Uh, and in the midst of the Torah, um, uh, Moses writes a, a phrase that says that Moses was the most humblest man in all the world. You're not laughing. Okay. <laughs> Seems odd if you were the most humblest person. Could you write that? Okay, you're not gonna go with me on that. <laughs> when we think about those who are living for Jesus, how do they identify themselves? They identify themselves as beloved. That's that child of God thing again. But notice these two words placed together, calmly sacrificial. Have you ever seen someone who is calmly sacrificial? That's a powerful piece. Uh, during the uh, Roman Empire, when the early church would be persecuted, um, the emperors would send out uh, the soldiers to r round up the Christians, and they would be used for entertainment. Uh, they'd be placed into the Colosseum or into the arena, and uh, they would be torn apart by wild animals. It was um, a, a belief and an expectation of the early church that you could not go and pursue martyrdom. You could not pursue martyrdom. That meant if they were rounding folk up, you couldn't run out there with your Bible and your, and your cross and say, hey, me. You had to wait for persecution to find you. You could not pursue martyrdom. Calmly sacrificial. We think about the relationship with the church before we've seen it as a place to belong, before we've seen it as a place to be active, before we've seen it as a place that coaches us in our faith. Now the relationship with the church for living for Jesus folk is a place for humble servants, right? We're back to um, four still need the church because it's the, it's the place where service begins and ends. We continue to look, uh, the places where uh, folk who are in that four place, we want them to beware because when you become grumpy or judgmental, when others are not sacrificing as much as you are, that, that, that's kind of a stuckness. It's kind of like, well, why, why don't they do the things that I do? Right? As a parsonage family, I often get this from the folk who live in my house. Why do we have to move so often? Why do we have to live on the parking lot of the church? Why? 
For a while there, Grace was convinced that all parsonages had been um, uh, built by one builder and they used the same carpet and the same tile. I have to say that when we came here, it was different carpet and different tile. Good job. But do you hear the grumpiest, kind of judgmentalist, right? Why don't others have to sacrifice like we do? What that leads to is self-isolation. I'm just gonna do my own thing. I don't need y'all. I can feed myself. I can have my relationship with Jesus. Can you hear the slipping away from sacrifice? And in fact, the beginning to even give up the chance to surrender to Jesus? So we continue to look at uh, living for Jesus. This word sacrifice is, I think, the most important part of this stage. Sacrifice is the word that best defines those who live for Jesus. These are believers who have given up something of lesser value to attain something of greater value. This is no longer risk aversion. Uh, This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, safe at Union Seminary, in New York during World War II, choosing to go back to Nazi Germany because it's his homeland and his brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering in an underground church under the tyranny of Nazi Germany. Sacrifice. We look at Paul. Uh, Paul himself, he was set. I mean, you can imagine Paul. uh, Paul was probably a tenured professor in some wonderful Pharisee uh, school. He probably had patches on his uh, a coat and he had a corn cob pipe. I mean, he had, ev- that sounds like, that sounds like uh, uh, Frosty the Snowman, sorry. <laughs> Made sense in my head, but, but you, you have to imagine, so, so tenured, so safe. He had done all the right things until that Damascus Road moment. Think about Ananias. I love the story of Ananias. Ananias had to sacrifice, right? Uh, Jesus speaks to Ananias and says, I want you to go out to the Damascus Road. There's somebody there who's been struck blind, and his name's Paul or Saul of Tarsus. What? That's the guy that kills Christians. And Jesus says, yeah, go minister to him. Do you see the, the willingness to risk, the willingness to sacrifice? What is sacrifice? We often think about sacrifice as something that happens on an altar. We think about uh, Abraham uh, with Isaac uh, headed out to the altar uh, and Isaac saying, but where is the ram? Where where is the ram to be sacrificed? Uh, The problem with living sacrifices, uh, the problem with you and I, is that living sacrifices crawl off the altar. We don't stay still well. What if sacrifice wasn't about being tied to something? But willing to jump into whatever God's future has in store. We continue to think about sacrifice. I continue to be moved by Mother Teresa's writings. And this quote works really well for this stage four, living with Jesus moment. A sacrifice to be real must cost, must hurt, must empty ourselves. That's, that's that heart of stage four. Notice there's no fanfare. There's no cheerleading. There's no laugh track. There's no applause track. This is self-motivation because of Jesus' call. What is sacrifice? 
Now, it'd be easy for you to say, thanks, preacher, uh, I'll stay at stage three, because sacrifice looks scary. Go, go back. Yeah, there you go. The gift of living for Jesus is we learn the peace that comes with trust and sacrifice. We learn the peace that comes not by the, um, the level of funding in our 401k, not the uh, amount of square footage we have in our house. It's not about um, how fast our car will go. But we learn the peace that comes from trust and sacrifice in living for Jesus. Now, there are challenges, uh, and mostly you could just put the word sacrifice up for challenges, right? I mean, that, that, that's the hardest part. Uh, our, our whole culture is not geared to say, go and sacrifice, right? When we think about our children or our grandchildren, we think we want them to be better off than we are today, right? We, we don't think we want them to sacrifice and suffer more than we have. Sacrifice is that hard word. Um, you can all say seeing your life as a direct response to the love of God. Not getting stalled, but continuing to ask, where would Jesus serve? Where would Jesus sacrifice? And then I kind of talked about this earlier, but trusting God without fanfare. I, I have to be honest, I wish there was a, an applause track that followed me around, right? I, I uh, wrote my sermon on Wednesday morning this week, right? Uh, when I got done and pressed save, I wanted something to go, ah. Did you ever want that, right? Show up, uh, you know, um, remembered to pick up the groceries on the way home, <sighs> right? But see, this living for Jesus is not about living discipleship in su such a way that you get the, the, the extra views on your YouTube channel. It's not about uh, the extra fanfare. There's no trumpet chorus that uh, announces your arrival, but rather it is living for Jesus in a trusting and sacrificial way because that's all you really need. There are two things I really want you to know. I mean, we've talked for six weeks uh, 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 about discipleship stages, that we've been clear to say that faith is not just about turning the light on, but it's about figuring where you are and journeying to the heart of God. And I can't stress that all four of these waypoints or rest areas, they are places where children of God exist. That, that God's not saying, all right, you ones, become twos. Right? As your pastors and church leaders, we're not saying, well, we're a church full of twos, better get them threes going. No, no, we're all beloved children of God, right where you are. And so two things, first one is be where you are and enjoy it and grow. There's no expectation that you've gotta be further than you are. In the same way that there's no judgment for those who are behind who haven't gotten to where you are. And then the other one, Second piece is, if you've been long on the path, if you're a Timothy, right? Someone who grew up in the church never knowing themselves not to be a Christian. Hang in there. God's not done with you yet. God has more in store for us. That God is still at work in us. That uh, God is still sharpening us. God is still calling us on to perfection. I have to say that uh, languages are a really important piece of discipleship. It's really easy when we read, uh, especially in the gospel, where Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, that comes from the, the Vulgate, the Latin translation of Scripture. 
And that perfect word, I'm sure there's some Latin uh, students here, right? Perfect, the Latin word is perfectus, and the definition is what? Without flaw. Whew, well that's hard. I'm not gonna get there. How can I be without flaw? In the same way that the God who, the God who created me and redeemed me and sustains me is without flaw. What if instead of using Latin, we recognize that Jesus probably most likely spoke in Aramaic and that it was written down in Greek and that the Greek word there, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, is more likely be mature, fully formed. The Greek word is telos. When you look at the, uh, the tree that's about to be cut down uh, and worked over by the carpenter, the telos of the tree is that the master craftsperson is able to see in the tree a beautiful altar yet to be. So instead of being without flaw, what if we were mature? What if we were fully formed as our Father in heaven is the master crafter crafting us into who we're to become? Friends, this is not an expectation list that you've got to please, but rather it is grace upon grace upon grace. For whether, wherever you are, God is calling us to become who God's intended us to be from the beginning, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.